Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. All right, well, today we jump back into the book of Exodus, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Exodus chapter 18. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it'll be on the screens behind me. Uh, just to catch you up, um, last week, Pastor Chewy um, did a great job preaching on the costliness of discipleship, and so we've been out of Exodus for a couple of weeks now, and so to remind you of where we've been, the book of Exodus opens with a sense of desperation, a sense that God seems absent. And you wonder if God cares about his people and saw them in their suffering in the chains of bondage in Egypt. And so their prayers came up to him, and he then answered their prayers by revealing himself to Moses. And he then sent Moses back into Egypt after Moses had fled Egypt. He sent Moses back to Egypt and, and through Moses revealed himself to the Egyptians through ten signs to show his power over Pharaoh who had claimed himself to be a god. And so he brought himself, the Israelites out of Egypt and they came to, this cross, to this, a barrier of a sea, but God made a way and brought them safely through the sea. And where we left off, even after all of that, even after God had saved them from the hands of Pharaoh and freed these people, even after he had brought them through the sea and protected them as he brought them through the sea and destroyed Pharaoh's armies for them, still they had a hard time seeing God's provision and faithfulness. They still grumbled against Moses, their leader, and against God himself. And, and so they came to the first th problem they had is they needed water, and they, the water was too bitter, and so God gave them sweet water. Then they, they were hungry, and they longed for their pots of meat back in Egypt, and so God brought manna from heaven and provided quail. And then they were thirsty again, and so God provided water from a rock. And today's text, as we continue, they are faced with new enemies. And the first enemy was the chaos within, or it's an enemy of, of another people group that likely wanted the water source that the Israelites had. And then the enemy of chaos within their own people, that things were too difficult but in this today, what we'll see in the text is that, that God will help us to, God will help us to, to provide for the, our burdens, that in our exhaustion, in our weariness, when we feel weighed down and spread too thin, that God provides a way and that he'll provide a way for us, ultimately through the people around us. And so we are in Exodus chapter 17, I'll read from verse 8 through chapter 18, and this is the text that is in front of us today, ultimately on Moses and Jethro. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek when Moses and Aaron and Hur went on top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, and so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had set her, sent her home, and along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... And I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods because in this affair they have dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the, peoples, uh, the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for all the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I have to decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, are, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about statutes and laws and make them know the way which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves, and so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, the chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Um, so, interesting text that we have in front of us. Again, since the sea crossing, the Israelites have faced barriers and obstacles in the wilderness. They've had a need for food and water. They've, they've faced the barrier of their own grumbling hearts as they've misremembered Israel and, and stepped into this new, this new uncertainty of following God. And now they face enemies on the ground and chaos within that continues. And we learn later how, how cowardly the attack of, the, of Amalek was, because in Deuteronomy chapter 25, um, it's recounted for us that Moses reminds the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind, and he did not fear God." And so this, is, this gives us a little bit of more detail on what happened with, the, with this warring people. The Israelites were moving through the wilderness. They were weak. They were tired. They were hungry. And another tribe of people came behind them and picked off the weakest of them. And so that's, a remi- that's really the, the essence of what happened here. And, and so we see these two scenes that Moses sends out Joshua. This is the first time Joshua is mentioned. Joshua was a young man that was rising in Israel and became really like the second hand to Moses and ultimately was the one that would lead the people into the land that God had promised them, even though Moses himself wasn't allowed in. So this is the first time we're introduced to him, and he leads the people out into battle. Moses, in the meantime, goes up onto a hillside overlooking the battle, and we have this scene that is well known um, as a scene in, in the biblical storyline, that as Moses is, willing, is able to hold his hands up, the, the, the Israelites are winning the battle. As soon as his hands drop, they begin to lose the battle, and so he gets tired. He's worn out. Eventually, they're like, hey, sit on this rock. And so he's able to sit on the rock and keep his arms up. But even that gets too much. And so you have this scene where Aaron and her come around him and are holding his arms up because Moses can't do it alone. You see, this is where it then feeds into this next section where after they had won the battle and God had provided victory for his people, then Moses' father-in-law comes, and it might be the first time, one of the only times in all of human history that a man has listened for the first time to his father-in-law. Moses takes his advice. Jethro comes to him, and Zipporah, his wife, and his two boys had been sent away at this point somehow. Maybe it was to go see Jethro. Maybe it was through the Exodus account. We don't know any of the details there, but but he gets word, hey, your wife and your kids are here and your father-in-law, and so he welcomes them in, and they sit down together, and they talk together and and recount what God has done, And, and you see this explosion of worship from Jethro saying, this is now it, the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God has provided a way. But as Jethro watches things, as an older guy who's leading a family and his own group of people, he's watching Moses kill himself. He says, this is too much. It's not good, Moses. You've got to have other people around you to help you. And so in both of these scenes, we see Moses reach his limits and realize how finite and limited and weak he is But we see that God provides help to carry our burdens. And so that's what we're going to focus on today, is that God provides help to carry our burdens. And these two scenes are related. So so four observations today. First, leaders carry the burdens of the people they lead. Moses wasn't on the front lines of battle here. 
Joshua was the one leading the people on the front lines, but he was vital to it. From on top of the cliff, when he was able to hold his hands up with that staff that God had given him, the people won, but whenever his hands dropped, they lost. And so the, peop- the fortunes of and the-, the future of the Israelite people in this battle were dependent on the stamina and energy and endurance of their leader to lead them. And that is one of the scariest parts of being a leader in any kind of capacity is that the people that you lead will reflect you and their lives will be impacted by you and that that you will carry the burdens of the people you lead. And we need, see, we misunderstand this so often because we think about leadership in terms of power or authority or decision-making when in reality, biblical categories and realistic categories, if you lead well, mean that you carry an incredible burden. And this can be true on all kinds of levels. This can be true if you, know, if you are in a house with other roommates and you just step up as a natural leader in that setting that the reality of the household you live in is going to be impacted by leading your roommates well. This is true as parents. My gosh, is it true as parents. It is terrifying to see your own sin and failure and weakness reflected in your kids and know that the level of of exhaustion that you carry has an impact directly on your family. The level of grace that you extend has an impact directly on your family. And so parents feel this and see this, that they carry the burdens of their children uniquely. And so it, because they're leading that. It, this is true for students who, are, who lead, in, lead their peers, whether it's in formal organizations or whether they just step up and lead a friend group, and that, that, if you're, that you step up and it, and it will shape the people around you. It's true in organizational leadership. Some of you that in your jobs see this, or if you're not the one in the lead, you see the impact of the leader above you for good and bad, how the organization is shaped by a leader. And it's true certainly in the church with pastors and the leaders in the church, that the success of the people we lead is directly affected for good or bad by the leaders that are above them. I think this is one of the scariest things to me is that I see it in, my, in, in so many layers and levels. I see it in my home. I see it in Alyssa and in my kids when I'm tired or when I'm not leading well. I see it in our staff team, in our church, in, in, on broad levels. And so now we see, it, we see it, and I think we see it on a broad level in our nation right now. And what it does to the entire nation when there's poor leadership and conflicted leadership that we see the results of leaders broadly. So we have an important corrective here that in, in Moses that in, in throughout Scripture, again, not understanding what leadership is, that, that we think about it as power and control. And if you pursue those things, you'll destroy the people that you lead. But instead, we need to understand that leaders carry an incredible burden. It's heavy, and there's no way they can carry it alone. And that's the second observation today, is that leaders need help. Moses could not have beaten Amalek on his own. This wasn't a case where Moses could have just, you know, exercised diplomacy and gone down and worked it out. And, and he couldn't have gone into the battle alone. He, I mean, Moses here, he couldn't even sustain standing on a hillside alone. Like, there's a part of us, right, that when we read this, at least for me, I'm like, Moses, you didn't have that hard of a job, Right? Like, you weren't swinging a sword down there. You were supposed to stand on a hillside like this. Like, maybe you should do a little bit more shoulder work in your life. 
A little, a little bit of yoga might help you with your posture. What is, you know, what is it going to take for you to be able to, you just have to stand on a hillside with your hands up, Moses. But, but it was, it was, he, even there, he couldn't have fought the battle alone. He couldn't even stand on the hillside alone. And so Aaron and Hur step up to hold up his arms. because he, and, and then later on in the second section we have Jethro, as he steps back and observes on a broader level what's happening in Moses' leadership, he's the one that's able to call out, Moses, you couldn't stand on the hillside alone. Um, because you need people to hold your arms up. And my gosh, you can't sustain what you're doing here. Like you, there's way more to handle here than you possibly can. And, and so leaders need help of people around them. It can never be dependent on one individual to lead a whole group of people, especially not when you're dealing with a group the size of the Israelites here. And so this is something we need to understand too, is that leaders carry a burden for the people they lead, and they need help along the way. And we need to hear this, whether you're in leadership, you might need the corrective of saying, hey, you need the help, or even if you're, if you're in a, a person that's more in a posture of following a leader, we need to hear this because we like the image of invincibility in our leaders. We like the right kind of vulnerability and weakness. We like the right kind of authenticity. We want to know that somebody's human, but, but we want to know that someone's strong enough to be able to carry the burden that's on them as their leader. We want that to know that they're strong enough to carry our burdens and that we can place those on them and that we can trust that they'll carry them. And so we want to know someone, but we don't want to see that they're too weak and they can't handle the burdens that we expect of them. Everybody in leadership and everybody that follows leaders is going to struggle with the limitations of those who lead. I don't do a very good job of understanding my own limitations. And I feel like God's been teaching me lessons over the past year or two on that. Um, like, this is true of me on broad levels. Um, there was an incident that was a wake-up call for me. Some of you already know this, but about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and this is just, I tell it, it's just to give you like one picture into the way that my mind works. Um, so we were given a refrigerator. Weird thing to be given. Um, it was in the Bennett's basement. <laughs> and, um, and so we have a really old refrigerator. We thought this would be nice. This one's newer. And so we brought it into the house. And I switched out the refrigerators and said, well, let's keep the old one around just in case. The new one leaked all over the kitchen floor. So I was like, well, that didn't work. And I switched them out. And that day, I was like, I've got to get this thing out of my house. We live in DC. We don't have much space. So I was like, the refrigerator's got to go. And so I brought it to the door and carried it down the steps on my own. And so I picked up the refrigerator and had to lift it above the railing and turned and then walked down the five steps to the sidewalk. And as I set the refrigerator down, I realized that the corner of the refrigerator had punctured my wrist. And I have a scar on my wrist now that's right above the vein, right next to the radial artery. Those of you who know human anatomy know how dangerous this really was. And so I looked and I could see tendons moving in my wrist and walked over to urgent care by Eastern Market. <laughs> and when you walk into urgent care, I know some of you have very frustrating stories about urgent care and the wait times. If you walk in and you're this size and the color is drained out of your face and you're sweating profusely, you're going into a little bit of shock and holding your wrist above your head, they are very attentive. <laughs> So by God's grace, the corner of the refrigerator missed everything, and um, they cleaned it out and sewed me up, and um, I got like, I don't know, seven stitches or so in my wrist, and the doctor was 
asking about it, so it was a great chance to preach the gospel to the doctor who was amazed by God's protection of me. I was like, well, I guess he's not done with me yet. But then afterward, even after all of that, they, you know, the doc asked, so what did you learn about this? Because Alyssa was telling the doctor <laughs> how I could have called all kinds of neighbors or we, lead, we were part of a church. Like I had some of you say, like, why didn't you call me to come over? I was like, well, it's because I got the refrigerator out. And she asked me, you know, what did you learn through this? And I said, I learned that next time I'll wear gloves. <laughs> I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to, have, to, to feel like I can't accomplish something. But if we pursue that and really buy into our own invincibility, God will find ways to expose our limitations and will show us the need we have for the help of the people around us. So Moses here needed the help of the people around him, and this is just the beginning. I mean, in chapter 19 next week, we're going to see the entirety of the elders of Israel brought into the decision and discussion about about stepping into a covenant relationship with this God who had saved them. And so Moses here was showing that he was realizing that leaders needed help, and he was able to listen to Jethro's advice and take that advice and, and step into something. And that leads to the third observation, is that structures will help us keep on mission. The order and structures and systems that were set up here were necessary to make the mission possible. And what was the mission that the Israelites were pursuing? Well, I love this because Jethro is able to see it more clearly than Moses is, which so often happens that, that leaders who are stuck in carrying the burdens of the people they lead and in the grind of meeting the concerns of people where Moses is saying, you know, when Jethro says, what are you doing here? And he says, well, the people come to me to ask about God. Like, that's a good thing, right? It's not just that he's handling disputes and arguments, that people are coming to hear what God's perspective is on things, and there are disputes, but also I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. And so I think what Moses is saying is then what gets recorded for us throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy as we have God's law and his statutes for his people laid out. This is from the wisdom and experience that Moses gained through leading the people. And so this is a good thing. And still in the midst of that, Jethro's saying, you're wearing yourself out. This is too heavy for you. You've got to get other people to help you with these things. And then there can be a, a system and structure where things you, can escalate to get to you, but there's got to be layers first. And listen to what he says in verse 23. This is the result. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in peace. That's the mission the Israelites were on. That was the calling Moses had as their leader was exactly those things. And Jethro was able to see it with clarity that Moses could not because he was outside of the situation. He was able to say, this is what you guys need. You obviously need God to guide and direct you. The people are in chaos right now, and God needs to lead the way. And as he leads the way, you need to, you need to be able to endure this. And you're not going to make it. You're not going to endure this wilderness experience in leading these people. And so all of you need to have endurance. And the ultimate goal is that you get to the place that God is leading you in peace, that you make it to the place of his rest, that you make it into the promised land. And so these, Jethro is saying you need to put these structures in place for the sake of the mission. Now listen, for us, there are some limitations here. We don't need a Moses who is the mediator between God and his people because Christ is our mediator. He's the true and greater Moses. 
He's made a way that Moses could never make. He's provided rest that Moses and Joshua could never provide. That's what the book of Hebrews is written to show us, is the supremacy of Christ as the one mediator between God and humanity. That, that he, through his death, a, way was, or a curtain was torn in his body so that we could open, openly come to God directly, no matter who we are. That, that it's through his death and resurrection that we have hope to be able to come to God. So we don't need a mediator like Moses here, but... There are still structures put in place here that then develop throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that develop and, and have influence on New Testament, and even get into the governance of the church. So, this is extended to churches today. Now, I know this isn't like broad, big theological themes of the power and identity of God like we've been in, in Exodus, but I think there is a reason for us that things get so practical right here, right before we step back into God's self-revelation on Mount Sinai. There's something important here for us. It's very practical, but important. And so the truths of, of the, the need for structures have extended to us. And so there's three things within this that I want to get to today very briefly with the time we have. First, a trellis is there for the vine. Second, the New Testament is clear on some structures. And third, the New Testament is not as clear as we'd like. And so let me talk about that briefly and how this is important for the church, that structures help keep us on mission. And just as another plug, if you, would, if you haven't been to our foundations class, we get into a much more in-depth discussion on how our church is structured to maintain the mission that God has called us to. And so I'd love for you to join us today to be able to dig into that more deeply. But briefly, a few things to observe in this. First, um, the trellis is there for the vine. Let me explain that a little bit. There's actually a book by this title that is a short little book that's really helpful, and it's an illustration that's already might be self-apparent in the title. Um, the, the idea behind it is that when you're cultivating a vine, I'm not a gardener, some of you might know this better than I am, but I'm told if you're gardening and you're cultivating a vine that you need a support structure for that vine. So like if you have a tomato plant, you have cages around the tomato plants, right? Well, why? Because otherwise the tomato plant's just gonna spread across the ground, it's not gonna be as fruitful. But if you put the cage around the tomato plant, you, you have a structure around it that allows the plant to continue to grow and to be more fruitful than it would have been. And so there's a tension that we always face that the work of God's people, the mission of God's people is organic. It's cultivating that vine, making sure that there's fruitfulness that grows from the work that God is doing. But we also need some structure in place to prop up the vine so that it can continue to grow. And we can tend to fall off on both sides of this, that, that some of you are structure people and you would build the perfect trellis, the perfect cage that was perfectly built and not have any vine to show for it. <laughs> or the vine wouldn't ever reach the trellis that you've built. And some of you fall more on the organic side where you love people's lives and working with people and evangelism and, and you're great at vine work, but, there's, but you resist structures and say like, no, I don't want any organized religion. I don't want any you know, organizational things. Give me the heebie-jeebies. And so there's no structure to it. And so it just kind of spreads out and you aren't as fruitful as you could be. And so we need both. And so Moses here is being told by Jethro, like, hey, the, the trellis work that you've got here for the people of Israel isn't gonna hold up. Because the trellis was just Moses. It wasn't a trellis, it was a stick. And Moses holding his staff aloft. And Jethro was like, no, you've got to build something here that's going to make it possible for you to achieve your mission that God will direct you, that you'll be able to endure, and that the people will go to their place in peace. In the church, 
We need both. We need a helpful structure that allows us and frees us to do the work that God has called us to and the mission he's called us on. So within that, the New Testament is very clear on some structures. It talks about offices that are in the church, that there are members, and it talks about what it means to be a member of the church in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12. And so we take membership very seriously as a church. Our members have an important role in leading in our church. Within our members, then, we have deacons and elders. And so deacons serve the church on really practical ways. And we see this kind of in Acts 6 when the apostles appoint people to care for the Hellenistic Jewish widows that need help. And they say, we can't do this. We've got to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. But this is important and vital. So they have deacons that step up and seven deacons that are named. And so as a church, we have these are structures that are clear within the New Testament. Uh, Now, how that works itself out, though, is never quite as clear as we'd like it to be. And that's why we have huge variance on church governance. And some of you have come from different backgrounds. Some of you come from Episcopal-type backgrounds that have a very clear hierarchy of bishops and overseers and archbishops. And uh, others of you come from a Presbyterian background where there's, there's systems of, of sessions of elders and, and, and sessions that are broader than the church. And some of you come from congregational church models where leaders are representatives that are, that are um, sometimes it feels a lot like American governmental representatives that have been elected for oversight. And so the new, it's within that, there's all kinds of ways that people have taken those structures. Um, at Redemption Hill, we are a church that is elder-led and congregationally accountable. So what that means is that we have a group of elders that lead the church and care for the church and try to meet the needs of the church um, alongside our pastors and our staff team. And so, but we also are, you know, I love that, that what, is, what does Jethro say? He says, look, for, look among the people. He says, there, look among the people for men who fear God. Look at, and look at the qualifications that Jethro gave. Like, these aren't like leadership and organizational skill sets. It's character. He says, look, look through all the people for, for able men, who, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and then place those people as in layers of chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And so it, as a church, our leaders are constantly looking in our membership for people who are, who are ready to be equipped to serve, to be able to lead community groups, where, which are the front edge of pastoral care, because we realize that our elders and staff team can't bear the burden of everybody's needs and care issues, and that there are some times where we want to step in, um, and where you need the pastors and elders to step in, or Titus II team to step in, but there are other times where maybe your community group is the best place to meet your needs. And I love watching that happen. There are so many things that happen at Redemption Hill Church that, that the needs of people are met in their community groups, and I just hear about it later on, and that means that things are working well in the church. But let's realize this when we think about leadership. Jesus is God incarnate, and how many did he have closest to him that he was personally invested in? Twelve. And there were, when the crowds would come in, he would get tired, and we have to withdraw at times. And so it was then those 12 who he equipped and sent out, and those 12 equipped people who were sent out, who equipped people and were sent out, and all of this was able to to continue to advance the mission of the gospel. So at our church, we have members who are equipped to lead community groups, to serve as deacons, women to serve on our Titus II team and as deacons, men to serve as elders, and our staff executes the vision of the church and tries to carry it forward. And all of that is in the hope that if we have things structured well, it'll help keep us on our mission, that if we do this, God will do what? That he'll direct us, that we'll be able to endure, 
and that all of these people will go to their place in peace. And so the biblical categories focus on responsibility that leaders have, but leader, and leaders carry a burden, but they need help, and structures will help keep us on mission. Fourth observation, and this is where we'll wrap up today. Rejoice in what God has done. The Israelites haven't done much rejoicing since leaving Egypt. They, Moses sang a song in, right after the sea crossing, and the people sang with him, and Miriam and the women sang a refrain of that song. But in general, they've faced obstacles, and the obstacles they face, remember, they are a need for food and water. They've faced the obstacle of their own grumbling hearts. Now they face the obstacle of enemies on the ground and chaos in, among the people. And so within this, they, there wasn't much rejoicing happening within the hearts of the Israelites. You don't see them in spontaneous outbursts of worship and praise of the God who had saved them. You see a lot of fear over the uncertainty of heading into the wilderness. And so this is, I think, one of the keys for us, and that's why I want to end with it today, is that every one of us is facing a spiritual battle. Every one of us. Some of you today are still caught in Egypt. What I mean by that is some of you haven't come from darkness to light. You haven't embraced freedom from the chains of the bondage to your own sin that God has offered you in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you're still caught in a spiritual darkness and captivity, and God feels distant and absent to you. And so you need to hear today that God has made a way for you to be freed by the blood of a lamb. That Jesus Christ was killed in your place for your sin to deliver you from, from darkness into light and bring you into God's presence, but it takes a decision to lay down your own comforts that you pursue and trust that Jesus has a better way for you. And so some of you, the call today is turn to God and he will free you through Christ so that you can be freed to rejoice. For some of you today, you followed Christ and you've brought, been brought safely through the, the sea of God's wrath, and, and you've seen God's grace in your life in real time. And we face the same danger as the Israelites, that we can tend to forget what God has done. We can tend to have grumbling hearts, be overwhelmed by our tangible needs and immediate needs and lose trust that God sees them. We have enemies that are real, that are fighting against us, and, and enemies that are spiritual that are fighting against us. And so it can build a toxic bitterness that grows in our own hearts, and we can get tired along the way. Because even though we're on the way to the promised land, we haven't gotten there yet. We're not in our ultimate rest yet, but the struggles that are around us are exhausting and threatening, and life is a spiritual fight, and you get tired, and it's not, that, that means you're human, when we get tired, it shows us that we actually have limitations, even though we like to deny that they're there. And so the antidote to our grumbling is worship and thanksgiving. And it's worship and thanksgiving with other people in community. And this is what happens, that Jethro comes in, and Moses and he and Moses go in, and they go into the tent together, and they have, they have this discussion. And look at, though, Moses told the story of how God delivered them, and I think what he told was probably the first 17 chapters of Exodus, that we have it for us. This is what he told Jethro and reported to him, but it wasn't Moses who was worshiping God in the midst of it. He was recounting the details, but in verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to them. Again, it took an outside perspective to bring Moses to a point to see that he should worship God and be thankful for what he had done. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord, in verse 10, who has delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because, because of the way he's dealt with this people. And so 
they brought a burnt offering and sacrifices, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so do you see this? this I love this, because Jethro steps in, and Jethro brings practical wisdom and advice, but before any of that even happens, what does he do? Jethro says, stop everything. Do you see what God has done for you? Let's, let's have a feast and sacrifice to him and worship together. And so they throw a feast with the elders of the people to draw their eyes to celebrate God's faithfulness and grace to them. Why? Because sometimes others will be able to see and celebrate God's power in our stories when exhaustion clouds our vision. And so they worship God. And that brings perspective and clarity for them. That's my hope every Sunday as we gather, is that we gather to get our eyes refocused, to gain perspective on life, to worship God and be reminded of his goodness and faithfulness and grace to us. And that's true in our struggles with sin, to be reminded there is, there is victory in the cross. It's true in our weariness of battles fought in the world around us, that we can be reminded that Jesus is the king. It's true when you're tired and weary from doing good work that you can know that Jesus has gone before you. It's true in our marriages and in our relationships that, that telling the good stories of God's work and provision can reset our eyes and help us to see the goodness of God to us. You see, the reality is there are no coincidences in my life or in yours. And resetting our eyes through worship and thanksgiving can help us to see God's grace and provision, and others around us will be able to help call that out for us when we're too tired. So this is what I want you to come away with today. You are not alone. God has provided a help to carry your burdens. For some of you today, you need to lay down the delusion of your own invincibility and your own self-sufficiency. And trust that God has put people around you, a great cloud of witnesses through his word, through the history of the church, and in the people that are around you in community. So don't isolate yourself. Don't keep believing that you'll be able to hold your arms up on your own and, and believe the lie that you, that you can handle it on your own. Lean into community. Find a Joshua who will, will help fight the battles with you. Find an Aaron and a Hur who will lift your arms when you're tired. Find a Jethro who can come in and give, you, give them freedom and ask for perspective on your life and what needs to change structurally. And, and if you do this, my hope is that God's spirit will work through the voices of his word and the people around you so that God will direct you that he'll guide your path, that you will be able to endure, and you will go to the place of his rest in peace. And church, that's my hope for us, that there's a corrective, there's an intensely practical passage for us, but, but we need to see on a broad level as a church family as well that God provides help to carry our burdens and that there are unique ways that leaders within the church are burdened, but they need help. And so we're structured to try to keep us on mission, rejoicing in what God has done along the way, but this is our goal. That if we do these things well, the goal isn't to have good structures for the sake of good structures. The goal is that God will direct us. That we'll be walking firmly in the path that he has for us. That, that we will be able to endure together. And that all of us will go together as we make our way toward eternity in his presence. The place that he is taking us in peace. And let's pray. And Father, would you help us today to lay down our own need 
to be able to be in control, our own need to be self-sufficient, would you help us to see the need we have for people around us? Would you help us to see the needs of the people around us and, and, and go and lift each other's arms today? So I pray today that by your spirit and by the words and voices of the people that are in this room, that, that, that some here who have come in discouraged and weary and beaten down would be able to leave with a heart that has been lifted and eyes that have been refocused and a, a vision for what is ahead that is clearer than they can possibly imagine now. We are in a spiritual fight. We know that the devil, like Amalek, wants to pick off the ones who are straggling behind because they're tired. So I pray that you would protect your people, that you would guide us, that you would bring us safely to the place you have for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.